0: Now, you'll notice at the top of Psalm 82, it is uh, credited to Asaph, so this is not a Psalm of David. The Psalm is very short, so let's take a peek at the whole Psalm. God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly, Psalm 82, 2, and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked, Psalm 82, 5. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, seven, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth. Here's the Kind of the other bookend. God takes his stand. Now verse 8. Arise, O God. This is the cry of God's people. Judge the earth, for it is thou who does possess all the nations. So this is a wisdom psalm by category, but it is a, a theme of a cry for justice. It's crying out to God that he would do what he's ultimately responsible for. God is the ultimate judge. And this is a cry for justice. And we have to remember that the psalms are songs. This was the hymn book of Israel. And it would seem somewhat unusual, I think, for all of us to realize that songs were sung about justice. And we might say, well, you know, I thought thought the psalms were about praising God and asking Him for help. And that's true. But this is medicinal. We've been calling the overall series Medicine for the Soul. This is medicinal in another sense. I think we can find comfort in knowing that God will judge all things righteously. And that, that's another form of comfort. Because we look at this world sometimes and we, we want to run to God for refuge, and we do. And we want to find, as we lean into Him, He will be our banner and our strength. And hopefully we're all doing that. But there's another reality that needs to be medicinal for our souls. And that is that God will mete out a righteous judgment. That's who he is. He is a righteous judge. And this particular psalm is moving in that direction. I've called it God Takes His Stand. Verse 1 says, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. If you have an NIV, it says he gives judgment among the gods. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. I'll come back to that in a moment. If you have a New King James, it also says he judges among the gods. Now, the first thing I want you to see is God takes his stand in his own congregation or in the midst of a group of people or an assembly. We read in other Psalms that God is surrounded by his angels, and there's perhaps billions and billions of angels that attend to him. And we know that angels are not gods, uh, and we know that sometimes in our Bible we'll read about other gods that the God of the Bible does acknowledge but take a peek at Psalm 96, just to give you one example, and there's many I could give you. This Psalm 96, it's in verse 3. It says, Tell of his glory, God's glory among the nations, Psalm 96, 3, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, there's a divine name, Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared, What your Bible say? Above all gods, small g. For all the gods, small g, of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. If you take a peek just back to Psalm 94, you'll see another cry for judgment. Verse 1, Psalm 94, O Lord God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth, rise up, O judge of the earth. God is the judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud, how long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult or rejoice? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. This is the theme of some of the Psalms. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush thy people, O Lord, and inflict, afflict thy heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. And they have said, the Lord does not see nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Now in Psalm 94, those first seven verses, I want you to see the cry of the righteous that God would uh, judge, that he would intervene. And then notice in the Psalm, uh, to the right of it, Psalm 96, there is a comparison or a contrast, I should say, between the true God and the gods of the peoples with a small g g, Uh, In the Ten Commandments, God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other God, small g, before me or beside me. And then he goes on to say, don't make an idol. Now, Israel came out of Egypt, which was an idol factory, much like Babylon. That's why they made the golden calf, by the way, when Moses was gone for 40 days and 40 nights, because that's what they knew. They were used to that. Even though they were Hebrew people and certainly they understood things and truths about the God of Israel, still they were prone to go to the false gods. Now in Psalm 82, 1, God, the true God, takes his stand in his own congregation. He is standing up, the judge, the ultimate judge, is about to judge the judges. All judges will be judged. Judged. And so I was thinking just before I came up here that to be a judge must be a very difficult position to be in. Let's just take a good judge, for example. You know, you wear the, the gown, you go up on a bench, you have a gavel, and you're making decisions. Sometimes people's lives are on the line. Sometimes it could even be the, the issue of a death sentence, and you hear testimony, and you have to render a judgment. And oh, that our judges would be crying out to God, right, to make good decisions, And the book of James says, let not many of you become teachers, for we will incur what? The stricter judgment. There is a judgment coming for those who teach, a judgment coming for those who judge. In John 7, 24, Jesus said, make a righteous judgment. Now, we have to make judgments every day. And I know a lot of people are big into saying, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And that's the only Bible verse that they know. But the Bible does teach that you have to make judgments every single day. You make judgments about your life, your occupation, your place of worship, how you're going to spend your day, who your friends are. You make judgments every day. The Bible doesn't tell you not to judge. It just says don't make hypocritical judgments. Amen? In the way that you judge, you will be judged, Jesus said. So judges will be judged. Teachers will be judged. And would to God that we would, you know, make sure that when we are going to render a judgment, and this applies to all of us in any given situation, if we're going to make a judgment on somebody, let's be careful that we slow it down a little bit, downshift a little bit, make sure we've heard, you know, both sides of the story, and then make sure that we render a proper righteous judgment based upon the unchanging word of God and not our opinion or not who we lean toward or who we're partial to. And this is what was happening in the ancient world. And it doesn't happen today, just the ancient world. That's a joke. That people, you know, who had wealth and power could buy off judges They would sometimes take the poor, the book of James chapter 2 talks about this, into the law courts. And because they had money and influence and power, judges could be bought off and paid off. You know, there's so much garbage that goes on behind closed doors. And when you find someone who's a good judge, an honest judge, a righteous judge, it is a refreshing thing. We were praying before the service tonight and we have, you know, Pastor Mike McClure in San Jose Calvary Chapel who's gonna stand before a judge tomorrow and uh, Robert Tyler's defending him, and, you know, we're praying for the pastors there at Calvary Chapel San Jose, but we're also praying that the judge would have, make a righteous judgment, and not just how the political winds are blowing, or whatever it may be, and we we all have to be careful, because we all have our, you know, ways that we lean, and And so forth. So God takes his stand. He stands up, if you will, from his throne in his own congregation or among the assembly. We can imagine angels here. But um, we can also take some pictures from other places in the Bible. For example, in the book of Job. Uh, In the book of Job, we know that the sons of God appear before God. And Lucifer is among them. And he seems to be checking in with God. And the question, the exchange Happens between uh, God and Lucifer. Uh, you know, where have you been, and have you considered my servant Job, and so forth. And so, there seems to be a checking in, even with fallen angels, to the true God, or the God of the Bible. He judges in the midst of the rulers. Now, if you have a New American Standard verse one, Psalm eighty-two, it says rulers, but others, uh, other versions, NIV, New King James, say gods with a small g. That's the word Elohim. And so some of you are saying, what, is, what does this mean that God judges among the gods? Well, let me just give you the word, and as we work down the psalm, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but the word Elohim, spelled E-L-O-H-I-Y-M, transliterated into English, Elohim, can mean God, the God of the Bible, but it also can be rulers, rulers, Judges, divine ones, angels, gods with a small G, etc. or even a god-like one. And so here, rulers are depicted as having the role or a godlike role. Now, no ruler is on the level of God. There's only one God by nature. Amen? You can make a God out of anything. The Israelites made the golden calf. People, you know, worship false gods all throughout history. Even Satan is called the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 4, or the God of this world. Now, he's not the true God. We all know that. He's a fallen angel. But he's attempting to get worship, he's attempting to be a God in one sense. And the rulers had a godlike position in this sense that they were making judgments. And if you were a judge in Israel, for example, what would your code book be? It would be the law of God. And so the expectation on a judge would be that you would make a righteous judgment. So if you had the position of a priest or a judge and you were making you know, decisions about people, even at times life and death positions, you were in the role of, a, of God in the sense that you were God's representative. The modern application could be the power of the sword with, for example, a police officer or a judge who might hear a capital case and have to render a judgment that has very serious consequences. The power of life and death, ultimately, they represent God, if you will. They're not God, but they represent God. And this is what we're dealing with here. And the question comes to these rulers, they're Human rulers, I I think you'll see that as we move down. How long, Psalm 82, 2, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? How long will you do this? Will you render unjust judgments? And then there's the the Selah, uh, which is a pause in the song, remember? But this is a pause right after a serious question or accusation. How long will you continue down a wicked path? Pregnant pause. Not a fun pause, is it? Because oftentimes when we've spent a little time considering Selah, which is pause and ponder and meditate on that truth, it's been wonderful. Like, oh, Selah, God loves me. Oh, Selah, the the Lord of peace, the Lord reigns, righteousness. But here it's how long are you going to keep doing the wrong thing? And sometimes we need a little pause after questions like that. Would you agree? Uncomfortable pause. Bulletin shuffle pause. You guys familiar with the bulletin shuffle? It's when someone's sitting inside a church and the Holy Spirit's got a hold of them, they do the bulletin shuffle because they don't want to. They're trying to deflect the truths that are coming at them. It's called the bulletin shuffle. Anyway, never mind. How long? How long will you judge unjustly? How long will you show partiality to the wicked? Why don't you turn to the book of James for a second, James chapter two, hold your place in that psalm and we'll come back to it. But the book of James, James deals with a lot of hard truth and this is one example of it. Here's James two, <clears throat> we'll pick it up in verse one. My brethren, he's, a, he's addressing believers. My brethren, James two, one, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism or partiality. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, James 2.3. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? Here it is, with evil motives. I guess anybody can take the role of a judge. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, that is God's law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor or tra- as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Now, if we were to summarize the law back to Psalm 82 and ask what the essence of the law is, James has hit the nail on the head. The essence of the law is that we love people. No matter who they are, no matter if they look like us, no matter if, you know, they come from the same background or whatever, we're supposed to love each other. In fact, you know that you have passed out of death into life, 1 John 3, I think it's verse 14, if you love God's people. One of the greatest measures of whether or not you belong to Christ is your love for people. And that the distinctions between, you know, where we come from, our skin color, whatever it may be, our bank accounts, our pedigree, It means nothing. All ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen? This is what should distinguish the church from the world and the the petty stuff that goes on. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Psalm 7, 3 through O oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, <clears throat> I want you to make this personal, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or plundered, plundered him without cause, uh, was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust, say la. That's Psalm 7, 3 through 5. In other words, the psalmist says, if I've done this, because it is easy for me to judge other people when we're talking about judgment. Can I get a witness? Oh, yeah, so-and-so does do that. Oh, yeah, such-and-such does do that. If you have a loved one by your side, you are that person. Little loving elbow to the midsection. Did you hear that? Or the famous one, I wish so-and-so were here tonight. Because they really need to hear this sermon. <laughs> and all God's people said, that's right, Raggy. Relp." <laughs> Proverbs 16.9 says, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Deuteronomy 1.17 says, you shall not show partiality in judgment. Proverbs 18.5 says, to show partiality to the wicked is not good nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. You can't judge something fairly if you are partial. Acts 10:34 Peter in the house of Cornelius, a group of Gentiles, Peter said, I am I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. So how can I? So let me just tell you that this is a transition to think about in these verses. This is back in Psalm 82. God's question is, how long will you do things that contradict heaven's heart? Selah. Now, when we get to verses 3 and 4, I will tell you that you're going to see heaven's heart. It might be a little bit surprising, because this is what it says. It says, vindicate, literally lift up the faces of the weak and fatherless. Do justice, here's what God, the ultimate judge, wants the judges of the earth to do. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Now we get detail about the judge's heart for the judges of the earth. This is what he wants to see. This is not exhaustive, but it interests me that God goes here first and says, vindicate, vindicate, Lift up the faces of the weak and the fatherless. You know, in our world right now, uh, we, so we have a blight on our world happening at uh, epidemic proportions, and it is sex trafficking. And we support a ministry called Destiny Rescue. I'm actually wearing one of the bracelets that one of the, the girls that was rescued made. Um, and that ministry goes into very dangerous spots, brothels and bars and the like, and tries to rescue underage kids out of sex trafficking. It can be a very dangerous endeavor. And they sometimes have, they do whatever they have to do. Sometimes it involves exchange of money to rescue these kids out of this life. It is a ministry of vindication or rescue. And I have to ask myself, how much, do I do of that how much do I get involved with lifting up the faces of the weak and the fatherless you know we've been hearing stories in the news that uh, young girls and it could be boys as well who get sucked into some of these situations where they are abused come from fatherless or parentless situations or they're runaways And they get exploited by people who should know much better. And I'm not going to get into the grimy details tonight, but some of you are aware of stories where people, you know, the, the evidence is very clear. They get somebody weak and vulnerable on the streets. They manipulate them for their purposes. And part of the role of God's people is to vindicate these people, to lift up their faces I know many of you have opened your home to adoption, and I think that's a form of this, to rescue. I think pro-life ministry is a form of this. When we have you know, children who are the most innocent victims in the womb, um, this, is, this is part of what we need to cry out to God for, and we've got to be wise about how we do this. We need to realize we've all, all fallen short of the glory of God So we we need wisdom in the way that we walk this out, because it's been done wrong. But the judge of all the earth, God says, rescue the weak, verse 4, and the needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. I just wonder, and I I have to ask myself these questions as a pastor, how much church ministry is directed this way? I'd say some. Some. Uh, I don't know if, if God has more for us to do. Uh, I know there's more to do. And I don't know if he might be putting on your heart to be part of the solution there. Those who may be caught in a net of manipulation and lies, that you would be an advocate for them. Uh, I'll let you think about that, but that that's what was speaking to my heart as I looked at these priorities. In verse 5, it says... And I think this is a direct application to these leaders. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. They're the blind leading the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, will they not fall into a pit, Jesus says. And it is interesting, you're going to see in a moment that Jesus quotes from Psalm 82. And when he quotes from Psalm 82, it is really on the heels of three major conflicts with the religious leader of, leaders of his day, which were sit, seated in the chair of Moses. They were giving out the word of God, the law of God, though they had twisted and added to it. And they were also the ruling class of Israel, the Sanhedrin, which was the, uh, the chief priests and the Sadducees of the day. They were the political leadership of Israel as well as the religious leadership of Israel. And they were confronted by Jesus on multiple occasions. So Jesus did get political at times in his confrontations. And so, you know, James one twenty seven is a verse that many of you have uh, put in your memory bank. And this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to help orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so some churches have James 127 ministries because if that's the heart of our father to rescue orphans and widows in their distress, to keep ourselves unstained by the world, etc., that's what we want to do. We want to do justice. Look at the action words. We want to vindicate, do justice, verses 3 and 4, rescue and deliver. I don't know what you're doing these days in terms of living your life for God, but that might not be a bad start to see how you might be an answer to someone who might be in a situation where they're in a tough spot. You know, we do that annual Royal Family Kids Camp and these are kids in the foster care system and we raise money all year round and it's not just our church, it's a ministry uh, around the states and maybe in other countries and, and we're just trying to give kids from six to 10 years old just a little glimpse of the love of Christ for a week. That, that's something that you can do. And and it often takes, you know, 50 to 60 volunteers to take vacation time from work and go down to a camp in San Diego and say, I will be part of the answer. And there was even a movie that came out about a counselor that had such a connection with a troubled kid that, you know, he ended up adopting that kid, I think is how the story went. And it's the heart of God. Not for us just to know about truth, but to do it. And those who were in these positions, you know, reminding me of John chapter 9 where they claimed to see, but they were blind and they couldn't even see Jesus's, or they wouldn't acknowledge Jesus being the Messiah when he healed the man born blind. Since you claim that you see, you are blind because you won't believe is essentially what Jesus told them. They were the blind leading the blind. They thought they saw. And verse 6, leading into some of the more complicated portions of the psalm says, I said, you are gods. This is again Elohim. And all of you are sons of the Most High. Now, I want to take you to uh, the unfolding of this scene in John chapter 10, where Jesus quotes the verse. Hold your place in Psalm 82. We'll come back, but take a look. This is John 10, and this is a probably one of the more controversial sections Because Jesus' response seems a little strange on a uh, kind of reading on the surface, but I think you're going to see what's going on. Take a look. This is John 10, uh, verse 22. At At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. That would be Hanukkah. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon, John 10, 24. The Jews therefore gathered around him. I want you to think of the language of Psalm 82. God takes his stand in the midst of the assembly and the rulers, right? The Jews therefore gathered around him, Messiah Jesus, and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name these bear witness of me. I told you in rapid fire from David Guzik. I told you I'm the one who came from heaven John 3:13. I told you whoever believes in me has eternal life John 3:15. I told you I'm the unique son of God John 5:19 through 23. I told you I will judge all humanity John 5:19 through 23. I told you all should honor me just as they honor God the Father John 5:19 through 23 I told you the Hebrew scriptures speak of me John 5:39 I told you I perfectly reveal God the Father John 7:28 and 29 you can go back and listen to this later cuz I got to go fast I always please God and never sin I told you John 8:29 I told you I'm uniquely sent from God John 8:42 I told you before Abraham was I am John 8:58 I told you I'm the son of man prophesied in Daniel John 9:37 I told you I will raise myself from the dead John 10:17 and 18 I told you I'm the bread of life John 6:48 I told you I'm the light of the world John 8:12 I told you I'm the door John 10:9 I told you I'm the good shepherd John 10:11 Do you need more? I told you. How much more do you need? How many more miracles do you need? How many more exclusive claims do you need? How much more evidence do you need? Just one more. Tell, Tell us one more time. I told you. But you won't believe. And now they're surrounding the judge who's come to the earth to take our judgment Tell us plainly, I told you, 25, and you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name. If you won't believe my words, then believe the works. These bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep, John 10, 27, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, praise God. No one shall snatch them out of my hand my father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand i and the father are one now this isn't just one in purpose this is one in nature you have god the father god the son god the holy spirit one god in three persons the father's not the son the holy spirit is not the father this is not a Jesus-only doctrine. This is not just about unity and purpose. This is unity in nature. They are one in nature. The very first verse of God, John's gospel says that, that he's the Word and he's God. Now, the Jews know what he's saying because they took up stones again to stone him, and the Leviticus says, you can stone for blasphemy in the law. And Jesus answered, 32, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you. I would imagine right here, if you look at the flow, they've they've got the rocks in their hand, they're ready to fire, and Jesus calmly says, okay, which good work do you stone me for? They say, for blasphemy, because you, being a man, and he was more than a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. Now, there's the quote from Psalm 82, 6. If he called them gods, small g, to whom the word of God came, they were responsible to give out the word of God, to rule according to the word of God, And the scripture cannot be broken, cannot be empty of its power. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because because I said, I am the Son of God. If you do not believe, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father." Therefore they were seeking again to seize him and he eluded their grasp because it wasn't his time to die, nor would he die by stoning. But this is interesting. and I want you to think about the flow of the verses. They surround the Messiah, God the Son. He's the ultimate judge and they're supposed to be the rulers of their day. But what have they been doing? They've been making all kinds of unjust judgments. They can't judge anything fairly, anything righteously. They can't even make a proper judgment about God the Son, the Messiah, arriving on the scene. You know why? Because they're too worried about their position, too worried about their power, too worried about the approval of man rather than the approval of God. They can't make a righteous judgment. And Jesus quotes a psalm that's all about people who are supposed to execute the Word of God properly, supposed to make righteous judgments, but they don't. Do you think that these guys are familiar with Psalm 82 and the eight verses that are there? Do you think they know the context? Do you think they understand the flow? Do you think they understand the thrust of what's being said in Psalm 82? Psalm 82 is a cry for justice. It's a cry that uh, uh, corrupt rulers would repent and get things right and see things without having blinders on their face. This is not about Jesus saying that he's not God or that other people were called God, so don't worry about it. That's all I'm saying. No, he's saying, I am the judge and you ain't judging properly. Go back and look at Psalm 82 again. And I think they knew exactly what he was saying. This is not a verse that uh, diminishes the deity of Christ or he's not denying his deity. He's simply affirming the fact in a rabbinic way appealing to a psalm that nails these guys for what they really are. They don't represent God because they love the praises of men more than the glory of God. Amen? That's why Jesus goes there. And if, we, if you turn back with me in, to Psalm 82, this is what Jesus confronted in his day, unjust judgment, wrongs everywhere, And Jesus often said to his apostles, be of good cheer. Don't let your hearts be troubled. There's a lot of bummed out Christians right now, right? We're like, oh man, this world, and I know there's a lot of stuff going on. I know. Uh, I heard somebody recently say, if nothing else, we should be happy warriors because it'll just drive the other side crazy if you're just a happy warrior. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure we should do that just to drive the other side crazy. But, but don't you think you could be a happy warrior in Christ? Yes. After all, you know who ultimately is on the throne and you know where this is all going, right? And so we can have joy. But we can also see that these guys are being called gods with a small g, Elohim, sarcastically. Ironically. Uh, I think the Bible allows for some holy sarcasm. Man, I I so appreciate that. (laughs) Like when Elijah, you know, the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves. And oh, Baal, 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 Baal us out of this one. Baal, I'm bleeding for you, Baal. I'm jumping up and down, Baal. Well, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe he's in the restroom. Maybe he's reading the sports section. We don't know. (laughs) A little holy sarcasm. I, I do believe that Jesus' appeal to Psalm 82 is just that. I don't think it's a diminishing of Jesus' deity. The whole Gospel of John is about the fact that he's God. But I think it's a it's a smack on these guys who are supposed to represent the nation religiously and politically and are failing miserably. And that's why the whole psalm is a cry for justice. Oh God, how long? <laughs> Have you been there lately in your prayer life? Oh, Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? Oh, Lord, when? Oh, Lord, we've been praying for this. Expose this. Do that. Hey, this has been uh, an issue for the people of God for a long, long time. But ultimate judgment belongs to God. And these so-called gods or rulers, verse 7, will die like men. Psalm 82, 7 and fall like one of the princes. Do you remember? This is uh, Write this down for your notes. This is Acts 12, 21 through 24. Herod gives up, gets up to give a speech. And uh, he begins to pontificate. And uh, the people hearing the speech say, this is the, not the voice of a man, it's the voice of a God. And he, was, he didn't give glory to God, and he was drinking it in. Yeah, tell me more, tell me more. And an angel of the Lord killed Herod on the spot for not giving glory to God. I want you to see Psalm 82, seven, in that light. That a guy can be sitting in a, on a throne in a king's chair and uh, getting the accolades. And, and if you're sitting there and you know that Herod's done all these terrible deeds and killed some of the church and you're looking at it and you're like, oh God, when are you going to step in? And that's, that's an instance when Herod was killed on the spot for not giving glory to God. Jesus said of the religious leaders of his day, the scribes, the Pharisees, Matthew 23, 2, have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. There was literally a chair of Moses in the synagogues, a teaching chair. Also, you could say a chair of judgment. Therefore, all they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things, but they don't do them. Here's what they do. They tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries. They lengthen their tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplaces, being called by men rabbi. They love all that attention. But... They sit in the chair of the judge, but they don't give a proper judgment. And when we see this, when we see injustice, this is our cry. Verse 8, final verse Arise, O God, (laughs) judge the earth, for it is thou who dost possess all the nations. The nations are yours, the world and the people in it. Why don't you judge now? You ever had one of those days where you're like, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, and come right now, because there's some people over there, people over there, and they need judgment. (laughs) Then God might speak to your heart and say, do you remember when I saved you? Aren't you glad I didn't come back before then? You see, God's not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. And so he waits. He's fixed the day. He knows when he will judge. And so we have to trust him even with that time frame. And I think we certainly are reading a Bible verse here that gives us that allowance to pray, arise, O God, judge of the earth. The nations belong to you. How long, O Lord? All of that. But... We also have to trust God with the timing of these things because we're not the only generation that's ever seen some troubled waters. We're not the only people group in the church that's ever had some questions about whatever we're questioning tonight. All right, a uh, couple final verses. Luke 18 is a place I want to take you. Luke 18, the Psalms are about uh, worship and prayer. Just take a peek, this is, Something that Jesus says, Luke 18, and then we're, we're going to wrap it up. Now, Jesus, Luke 18, 1, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Luke eighteen two, He said there was a, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God. Notice he's a judge. He didn't fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him. So we have some of the players that we've been studying. We have the judge. We have a widow who should get protection from the judge. She kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now this is a parable from the, of contrast. God is a righteous judge. Hear the unrighteous judge. He says, The unrighteous judge finally gives in because of the constant uh, appeals. Now shall not God, the righteous judge by contrast, bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, O God, come O god judge maranatha you fill in the blanks and will he delay long over them i tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily however when the son of man comes that's the messiah will he find faith on the earth now here is a parable of contrast and jesus's words about uh I said you are gods, is is also a contrast. It's from the much lesser human fallen rulers and judges to the greatest, the judge of all the earth. And here's what struck me, and this is my final thought for you. Do you know that the judge of all the earth came down to this earth to take your judgment? Do you know if you were to summarize his mission the one who was enthroned in heaven above, the one who shared the glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one who said, Lord, I want my followers to see my glory, left heaven's glory, took on humanity, took on the role of a bondservant, was made in the likeness of men and came to die on a cross, to die a death on a cross. And the judge took my judgment at the cross. My God, my God, why? Why? Have you forsaken me? That's what he cries from the cross. The judge allowed himself to be judged. He took my judgment, my penalty. That is the amazing truth of the gospel. That's what I and you, we are anchored in, we live for, amen? The judge... Took my judgment. They led him away to be executed instead of me. He took my place. The, the righteous one died for the unrighteous to bring me to God. This is what we share with people. Because we could be quick to judge. We could be quick to, you know, say to the whole world, it's all over. Everybody, there's nobody left, Lord. I'm the only one. No, you ain't. We need to remember what the judge did for us and that he is coming. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel. It is the anchor of our souls. I think of a scene in Matthew 25 when Jesus will take his seat on his throne and he will judge the world. He will separate the sheep from the goats. And it's remarkable because the essence of what the Lord says in that text is I was hungry, (laughs) the people who belonged to me, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you came to me. I was in prison and you visited me. And we see that the actions of God's people reveal who they belong to. It is not a story about being saved by works. It is simply the reality that God's people will be known by their deeds. We are saved by grace. The judge took our punishment in full at the cross, but our deeds reveal who we belong to, what king we follow, what drummer we march to. Would you help us, O Lord God? Because sometimes we spend so much time worrying about judgment that we lose what we should be doing. God, forgive me for the times when I've done too much of that, too much nitpicking, too much maybe splitting hairs when all the while you've called me to be active, lifting the faces of the needy and the broken, living the gospel, doing exactly what you did when you were here, extending your hand to people who no one wanted to talk to, No one wanted to be near them. And I know many in this fellowship have that heart and they do that ministry, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the many stories that we could celebrate tonight where the people of God have done, in the name of Jesus, that kind of ministry. And it's beautiful, and it's not easy. Sometimes maybe we're even misunderstood, but Lord God, would you help us to have your heart and to walk out your heart in this world until you bring us to be with you. Would you cleanse us from any judgments that we've made that are unrighteous judgments, Lord? Would you help us to see that clearly? We, we have to make right judgments, and we have to weigh our doctrine carefully and what we believe and why we believe it. That's all true. But Lord, there's also an aspect of our walk that we can easily pass by, and that is that we have to have your heart for people, broken people, just like us. Would you bless your people tonight, and those who are watching via live stream, would you encourage their hearts? Would you speak to us in a Selah moment at the end of this message by your Holy Spirit about just how we put feet to this, Lord? It's not to be overwhelming. It's not, we gotta do these 27 things now. No, it may just be one thing. And it may be for the people that are closest to us. If you haven't met the king, the Lord, he wants to save you and he took your judgment at the cross. Would you cry out to him for salvation? Ask him to save you. He is faithful. Repent of your sin and trust him as your king and your Lord and your God. He'll be faithful to save you.